to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology is Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? All right, everything considered. I, mm-hmm. I'm just, like everyone, I'm sure, in a state of suspended disbelief, and it's like a kind of emotional concussion. I think the blunt impact and the force of it has happened sort of without me being able to be conscious of it and now I'm just sort of walking around with this uh, existential ringing in my ears yeah it's just um, a kind of tinnitus I suppose mm, you're, you're of course referring to the fact that you finally saw a portrait of a lady on fire of course I am the world has changed forever <laughs> It. I mean that is an absolute tonic because for anyone who hasn't seen it, Celine Siama's magnum opus, although obviously I want her to go on and keep making gorgeous films, um, but this is really something else. It dropped on Mubi in the UK yesterday, and uh, that would be Friday, recording this on a Saturday, and I uh, just got completely immersed in it. And there's something about a film that manages to be incredibly moving without being overtly sentimental and Mm. just brings you into it without feeling escapist like I managed to sort of not think about the pandemic for its running time (laughs) and yet I've never felt quite as close to humanity art women taboo went all sort of ways I didn't expect bloody loved it so that's how I am Ed how are you? <laughs> I'm good. I really need to catch up with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We were just talking beforehand about how that's one of the last like movies from last year that I know I need to see before I finally put together my you know yearly blog post of my top movies of the year, which gets later and later. It used to be I would kick myself if it went up on like January 1st. It had to be up on December 31st, no matter what. And now it's like, ah, it's any time before 2021 probably is fine that's um purely because i so often in the last couple of years like a movie will come out in the u.s and it will play in as was the case with portrait of a lady on fire that will play in la and new york like for awards consideration in november or december and that it will roll out everywhere else in like january or february and i'm like well i can't in good conscience put together a list if I know there's a movie out there that everyone loves and by all accounts because I like uh, Celine Siama's previous movies particularly her movie Girlhood I thought was really wonderful like I, I can't put together a list without having seen that and you know so I feel like in the in the like that's that's the last one I really need to to see and then I can finally start deciding what the hell my best of best of year list ends up being um but yeah i am really looking forward to finally eventually seeing that yeah for me this week in turn it's been i I think for the most part my quarantining and staying at home and everything have been mostly fine 
like it hasn't been too overwhelming or yeah obviously it's strange but like I'm in contact with people like obviously you and I record this every week and I've been having zoom calls with people and I've been talking to my uh, parents and uh, you know making sure everything's okay with them so there is a kind of a constant sense of communication and reaching out and making sure that everyone's okay but like I don't know like something something about this particular week it just kind of that I had it there was like one day where I was just kind of like man I miss people <laughs> I miss going I miss going out to like pubs and bars and things even though I've never been a massive fan of of certainly the American bar like I've yeah. never found them particularly it's no uh, pub is it Ed no it's just, it just doesn't have the same atmosphere but you know just like got like got get uh, kind of feeling nostalgic which also kind of plays into what we're talking about in the main episode like there, there was just a whole stretch of days this week where I was like just nostalgic for that feeling of being able to like send someone a text and say hey do you want to go do you know want to go to the pub for a little bit and just kind of like grab a drink and just thinking about that and thinking about just not being able to do simple things like that just really hit hard this week for some reason and then the next day it was like I didn't think about it at all but yeah it's there's definitely like a sense for me for you it's tinnitus for me it's you know it's kind of crests and waves and for the most part it's fine but then you'll get just kind of knocked down by just like a massive 30 footer <laughs> it just kind of like knocks me down onto the onto my ass I know exactly how you feel this week has been particularly tough for that I think it doesn't help that particularly in the UK the weather has really um, picked up it would be <clears> in any other circumstances a beautiful Easter weekend as it was last year if I remember correctly but like slightly off because that's the way that Easter falls but I think about Sheffield a lot mm-hmm. as uh, I'm well overdue a visit there anyway and I'm just going to be even more overdue sadly but something about particularly the pubs in Sheffield and wondering about Sheffield and it's a very beautiful city to walk around and be outside in mm-hmm. and I'm trying not to think of that too much but also letting myself feel sore about it because that's yeah. part of loving a place and on a slightly more flippant note I'm also hoping that once we're all out of this and okay that I don't lose my love of sacking things off and staying in for an evening because <laughs> that was one of my favourite things to do Ed and I'll be damned if this lockdown takes that from me yeah I um, there's, a, there's a meme going around that I thought was really really funny of um it was a picture two pictures of bruce springsteen and clarence clemens um the late clarence clemens where the first one is them kind of like um like fist bumping or something and it's kind of like it says uh me greeting friends before quarantine and the next one is one of the many times when they would open mouth kiss in (laughs) in concerts (laughs) and then it says me greeting friends after quarantine and i was kind of thinking like like i I really like that sentiment. I really like the idea of just like suddenly being more demonstrative with people and being able, like and trying to be more sociable and trying to reach out more. And that's something that I will, you know, like like to do. But also part of me is just kind of thinking, you don't want to take it too far. <laughs> you want to be able to still. You don't want to kind of zoom from being like, I don't know, like constantly thinking that if you're not out and about doing things that you're, you know, you're wasting, you know, your precious moments on earth and you know staying in all the time and doing nothing you know there is a ha- there is a healthy balance yeah uh as as someone who has been at both of those extremes 
over the course of my life. Like, I really do feel as if my university years and early 20s were very much kind of, like, constantly looking for a thing to be doing. Yeah. Like, a party to go to, go you know, trying to go out with drinks for people, or as, you know, when you and I both worked at the showroom, you know, if I was finishing a shift, like, going into the bar just to see if anyone was drinking and then just kind of, like, making a night of it and getting home at, like one in the morning just completely pissed like there's a there's a healthy balance to kind of strike between the two, two of those i feel and uh my hope is like after you know the quarantine ends or after we return to some sort of normalcy i can strike a balance between the two of what i've been doing more recently which is kind of like just kind of like staying in and enjoying being a homebody and the slightly sweaty desperate thing of being like <laughs> 20, 22 and thinking like god i need to just get out of the house and do things it's yeah. like yeah you can you can feel that way sometimes but just not all the time exactly it's all a balance isn't it and i think maybe our viewing habits will change now that we're sort of able to marathon things and catch up with things but i wonder if we'll relish doing things other than watching stuff inside speaking of which i finished i'm dying up here which i was raving about the other other week yeah i i come away with it with more questions than answers (laughs) (laughs) um and it is inherently flawed but still really well done everything ari grainer wears is amazing the end feels like it's a very nuanced ending i think and You were asking me, Ed, as I said, that I finished earlier this week. You asked me, oh, you know, does it feel like a definite ending or were they hedging their bets? Or, you know, did it seem like the cancellation came out with the blue? And I'm like, not really. Like, the final shot is very much a sort of cliffhanger, but it could also be read as, well, this has been nice, but it's definitely over. Um, Mm. But I still think that the very final episode managed to do a lot of things quite well and quite subtly in a way that a lot of the body of the rest of the series didn't um and I I you know maybe it's just me but it's still there's something quite comforting about watching stuff that is set in a time that there was that I had no access to it whatsoever watching contemporary <clears throat> stuff is a bit eerie <laughs> because it's like oh look at when we could all like be together and outside but yeah as I think I said before, I wasn't alive in the 70s and in the LA comedy scene, so I'm not feeling any sense of loss of that. Right, yeah, sure. It's it's good that, like, they managed to reach a point of, like, say, of nuance uh, in the ending, although, as I, I said to you when we were kind of, like, discussing this in our, uh, in our like, DMs, um, it it's always kind of a slightly annoying when a TV show does that, where you kind of get a glimpse of what the show could have been like if they had maybe gotten their handle on it a little earlier um and then for it to end like i always think of it was it was a show that obviously ran a long time but i always think it would have been really annoying if like star trek the next generation had been cancelled after the second season when after like a first season which by all accounts was like disastrous and was pretty poor um they suddenly started to kind of to get a feel for it and started to write the ship 
like it would have felt it would have just been so galling if like you got that steady kind of sense of improvement and then suddenly it's like well no this is done but fortunately the show was like successful enough that it was able to keep going and kind of mature and become the, the great show that it ended up being by the end of its run um, which is kind of one of the things I like about television as a medium is that there is that ability for a show to kind of like grow and find itself and to improve if given enough time although in you know the current age and the vogue for shorter series and Netflix only commissioning things for three seasons and then cancelling them in most instances it kind of feels like that period of like public growth is kind of not as encouraged anymore like there's not that sense that you get a season to kind of find your feet it's like you kind of have to have everything figured out from the beginning which I think is it must be a, a different kind of pressure and a different degree of stress for the people making those shows mm. before we go on to the main topic uh, I'd just like to uh, acknowledge and pay tribute to uh, Nobuhiku Obayashi the Japanese director who just passed away this week he is perhaps best known in the West for his movie House, which is pretty much the only one of his movies that is really widely available in the US because it was put out by the Criterion Collection. And that in and of itself is like a terrible shame because people who know his work and people who have discovered it through other means as a result of the fact that his work isn't that widely available outside of Japan talk about him as like a great underrated undervalued master of, of cinema and that you know people only know him for this completely gonzo weird horror movie they made in the eight in the 70s which is is terrific house is like a really really great movie but it's such a by all accounts such a like a limited vision of him as a director the fact that he hasn't really been afforded the kind of consideration of someone of his talents uh, is a terrible shame and I know that uh, there's going to be a retrospective of his work in uh, in New York at like maybe the Lincoln Center or, or Film Forum or something um, in September or November which hopefully will bring his work to like more audiences and, and I would just hope that this news would prompt someone somewhere to try and figure out whatever rights issues are stopping his movies from getting the kind of attention that they they deserve so this week we're going to be talking about art that we left behind or art that we outgrew this was inspired by in a roundabout way by a stream i watched from giant bomb the video game website which i watch a ton now because they do streams all day and it's kind of a good thing to have on in the background while i'm working um and one of their editors a guy named alex navarro he uh, every year or for several years he does charity streams where he plays rock band for 24 hours so he just puts a, together a playlist of songs from that and then he just drums and he's been doing some obviously shorter versions of those over the last couple of weeks where on thursday nights he kind of like sets up comes up with a theme for his playlist and then just kind of like plays with people and it's really fun but one of the songs he played on his most recent one was he played a deftones song because they're one of his favorite bands and it got me thinking about how when i was sort of 15 16 17 uh, i was really into the deftones particularly their fourth album the self-titled album which had the song Minerva on it, which I was really into, and that was kind of like my gateway into that band, and I had lots of friends who were really into them as well. And 
I was just it just kind of made me think oh like I was like massively into that band I really dug what they were doing and then I basically never listened to them again post like 2004 like it was a very short period of real intense interest in them but then I just like completely drifted away from them and have never really not really kept up with any of the stuff they've done since so I thought it'd be interesting to talk about instances of like of that in our lives where different artists or different like movies tv shows whatever uh, writers that we had like a real intense interest in just kind of like we just kind of like drifted away from for, for some reason in the case of the death tones i can pinpoint it pretty much just to the fact that in 2004 i went to university and stopped hanging out with people who listened to new metal <laughs> and so because there was ne- less of that kind of just hanging out with people and ambiently having like really aggressive rock music on uh, in the background that it was there was less of an incentive to kind of keep up with it and also you know that was around about the point at which the genre as a whole kind of started to slip from relevancy so there was less of that sense of like you know i need to watch six hours of kerrang every day and to keep up with what the what people are listening to one of the other kind of like major ones for me i think would be morrissey and this is not merely for his terrible political views (laughs) Um, that certainly has made me not want to go back to revisit his work but for me like there was there was this period where again around about the same sort of time that i was really into the deftones i really got into the smiths they're still one of my all-time favorite bands and i you know that was around about the time that morrissey made his big comeback with you are the quarry uh yeah you are the quarry was was that one and that was like you know a big return had a bunch of like big hits from it and there was like a couple of years there where i was just really really into him and then like the album he put out after that was like ringleader of the tormentors which was just kind of like the same sort of stuff as the previous album and I was like this is fine but it's not as interesting as I would hope and then the thing that really kind of just killed all interest for me was I read his autobiography and the first 150 pages of that book I think is really fun because it's him kind of like talking about the music that meant a lot to him and he writes so vividly about you know all of these different acts that he was inspired by and then immediately it gets into like the smiths and it's him just being incredibly bitter about everything and everyone and hating everyone and that was the point at which i was like oh right this guy is just kind of uh, unpalatable (laughs) you know i just couldn't imagine spending any time with him and when i then would listen to his music otherwise you would just hear so much of that bitterness and i was thinking oh like i always thought he was kind of like putting on the bitterness behind humor but now it's clear oh he's just really bitter and can kind of make jokes about it but the bitterness is still really really keen and horrible and so like that was the thing that made me think yeah i'm probably just not gonna ever listen to his music (laughs) ever again (laughs) because like there's just something about that headspace that i don't really want to be into i still will listen to the smiths and the early stuff because i feel like there he is I don't know, like, I like to think there he was more of a balanced person <laughs> than yeah. the kind of bitter creep that he seems to have become in later life. It's so rare to find a band or artist that will take you through, particularly from, like, people who've been around for a long time. Like, the only sort of 
example that comes to my mind is the outlier for me, which is Feist, who I've been mm. listening to since I was like 16 and mm. still listen to now. <laughs> and for me, it's less music because as much as I enjoy music, I am a complete and utter like surface level enjoyer. Mm. I'm not someone who engages with music in the same way that other people do, like true music fans. Like there are certain songs that like instill and, and inspire so much in me. But for me, definitely with, I guess with filmmakers and it's mainly, it's been TV recently, right? And I was mm. thinking on this and thinking about like, what did I leave behind like consciously or unconsciously? And the two big ones for me are, I have not finished the Sopranos or the West Wing. Mm. And I, there are two factors as to why I have not finished either of these things, right? That, that they both share. Number one, I started watching both of them for the first time with separate respective boyfriends who had seen it before and then our relationship ended before <laughs> we could watch it all. And then yeah. the second reason is I sort of knew what happened anyway. Mm. Um, and even though I'm not really someone who will not watch something off the basis of a plot point, I'd seen The Sopranos ending loads of times before. And again, because it, the mystery is baked into it, it didn't feel like I was missing out. But there's something about getting into a habit, particularly when you're watching something with someone, that the emotional fallout of a relationship ending means that you kind of feel like oh that's a bit tainted now at least mm. for like a while and then the idea of going back to it you're like oh is this okay is this am I ready to sort of pick this up and take it myself independently um, and with the West Wing I ended up giving the newsroom a go <laughs> and I was yeah, decided to leave that there. Yeah, Sorkin's one I'm probably not really going to keep up with anymore. And The Sopranos is one that... I mean, now I've got time. And it's on various platforms now, maybe. Because the beauty of The Sopranos is that I think, oh yeah, I haven't finished it. But each episode felt like a play. Mm. You know, they're so rich in themselves that I think that's where you run the risk of not, it's not got as much of a kind of tipping forward momentum and the central core of it isn't like the the arc. So you can actually feel very satisfied leaving a certain, leaving at a certain point. But equally, I might be able to pick it up. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's, it's fairly easy to pick up The Sopranos because it does come from that period when TV in general was more self-contained than it is now. And obviously um, there are kind of like arcs over the course of a season like the first one very much like the relationship between Tony and Livia is such a big part of it and like yeah. the gradual <laughs> worsening of their relationship to each other and the subsequent seasons will often introduce like some figure in the kind of like criminal um, aspect of Tony's life who start to cause trouble for him and then there's the question of how will this resolve itself and, and you know, things like that but for the most part 
often in kind of like interesting and surprising ways but for the most part like those are things that are happening in the background and each episode focuses on its own elucidation of Tony as a person or you know some crisis that he and his family have to confront and so I feel like it is kind of like a fairly easy thing to uh, to pick up the only stuff that's from season to season that you know is that you kind of have to keep track of really are the relationships between the people and who does to what's like Tony's relationship to Junior at this point you know are they on the outs are they kind of like friendly that sort of stuff so it's fairly easy to kind of pick up I think the West Wings I think is an interesting one for me because at, at this point I'm just so obsessed not obsessed but like I'm so fascinated by like the meta story of that of like how Sorkin wrote pretty much all of the first four seasons himself um, with a little bit of help from various people in the writers rooms and then he was fired and he left the show on a number of incredibly difficult to resolve cliffhangers that then meant that the people who took over the show from him were left like snookered and trying to figure out what they were going to do and like the the meta story of what the show ended up becoming and all of some of the actors in the show being very unhappy most notably uh, Richard Schiff being very unhappy with the way in which their characters ended up being treated and resolved like that stuff to me is so interesting that I kind of don't feel the need to watch the show anymore because like the drama around it to me just feels so fascinating in and of itself for sure yeah it's kind of state of play stuff and then uh, I mean you can pick it up as you go along can't you Mm. Uh, but yeah you're right in terms of like Sorkin is definitely someone who for a a long period of time I was just kind of like yes that is the pinnacle of writing in American fiction or whatever and like I still think he's someone who's a got a great gift for dialogue and everything like that but like some like the newsroom really just did kind of like kill a lot of my interest in him as a writer even though he's done stuff since then which I think is well written but that that show was there was just such a imbalance in like its sense of its own importance versus how sort of trashy it was on an episode to episode basis and the entire kind of premise of them being like this is how people should have handled the real life news <laughs> was just mm. like there's just something incredibly like self-serving about that that I found incredibly hard to overlook in the like season of it that I watched although his script for um the social network is still great yes I'll give him that but when it's free reign and just him with hours and hours to fill <laughs> not 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 so great yeah he needs he needs the pressure of someone like David Fincher who I'm guessing probably doesn't have a huge amount of respect for him or, but, or at least like doesn't feel like awed by him someone who's very much kind of like I've done my own thing I am going to take your words and I'm going to kind of mold them and I have my own to, to fit what I want to do I'm not going to you know have people walking down corridors and spouting these things back at them, each other because that's what you are used to exactly I think one that I really struggled with and then just left and maybe a couple of other series are great but I'm not I don't feel like enough was done 
who persuade me and um, bring me on board. True detective. Mm. Yeah. Oh my god, I cannot. Like, I, I try and think and be like gracious and calm and compassionate and give lots of grace but if anyone says how brilliant true detective is i just lose it i i think it's <laughs> and i think it's probably just from being a philosophy graduate and having been whilst i was doing my degree being at parties with both of them over and over and over <laughs> again i don't understand how it's entertainment or gripping it's so dull and and also just quite superficial like all of the interesting like the true detective is in an interesting world but we don't get to see any of the interesting bits is how I feel so I, I made it I made it through the first series because truly I am the bravest hero obviously um, <laughs> and then uh, yeah I can't believe it's been another another couple of series but there you go yeah people keep telling me the third one is very good um, but I just haven't felt the need to jump back in because I thought I enjoyed the first season although I think I kind of played myself a little bit in that I so enjoyed reading the theories about it and like all the stuff online which was talking about how actually they're investigating some sort of Lovecraftian horror and it all ties into like this book from the 1920s or whatever that when it kind of became revealed oh it's like a guy who's killing people <laughs> just kind of really i just could i found it so disappointing that that was the resolution even though there was there arguably there's nothing in the show to point at them having a supernatural element it's just everyone assumed it and i kind of bought into that um but like the second i found to be so morose and so lacking in even the kind of like visual flourishes that Carrie Fukunaga brought brought to the yeah. first season, that I just felt no. And even though like um, Vince Vaughn, I think is like a, a good actor and who I think can do the kind of menace that they want him to do well. I think Colin Farrell's great, Rachel McAdams, like all those people, I think are good picks for that kind of show. I just found the actual execution of it during their season just so completely uninteresting and lacking that even though the third season by pretty much every account is like a return to form and Mahershala Ali's grazing it or whatever, I just kind of feel like I don't I don't feel like taking the leap on it and getting back into it and, you know, caring <laughs> about yeah. True Detective again. Because <laughs> that's the thing, isn't it? Like, you do invest your time and your attention and a fair bit of emotion into it and that's the problem with True Detective for me, I think it it doesn't respond in kind to mm. any of that but similarly I really enjoyed the first series of Fargo and, the, mm. and everyone was like, oh the second one's even better and the second one I was like what is going on here? This is atrocious. <laughs> the second one was the one that went back to the 70s, is that right? It was indeed. I mixed up. And I yeah. was stoked. We all know how I love the 70s, Ed. Um, <laughs> uh, because, of course, I was there. And, yeah, it just... It felt like it was sort of resting on its laurels. I don't think you're mm. actually pushing the boat out and experimenting if there's a kind of... It felt showboaty. Like, oh, great, we're quoting the Jabberwocky 
fuck off. <laughs> I'm out. And of course, it all crumbled when I stopped watching. Yeah, the second one I have like like I just said there in terms of like not really being able to remember it. <laughs> like it didn't really hold much uh, impression on me. I remember enjoying the third one, but mainly that was because I love Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons. And oh yeah. Their whole plot line like really carried me through, but I don't really and Bokeem Woodbine's good as well. But yeah, there was uh, there was a lot of that where I was just kind of like, I don't really care too much, but I do enjoy the vibe and the setting, I guess. So that's kind of what's carrying me along. A show, speaking of Fargo, a show from the same creator that I just had no interest in continuing was Legion. Um, even though I like Dan Stevens, I like the fact that there is a show, a superhero show that clearly has like a fairly big budget that is like happy to get kind of psychedelic and weird and just be like okay this is a character with psychic powers let's have Audrey Aubrey Plaza kind of embody his the, the, the kind of like the dark id or the dark creature that's taking over his mind and have her just be doing completely wild over the top stuff all that stuff I really enjoyed but like I could not tell you at the end of any individual episode what the hell was going on and none of it is like None of it is like the sense of like, oh, this is really complicated and it's really hard to track. It was just like, I didn't really care enough to keep track. Yeah, that's so true. But I think now, because there is that whole like, oh, there's a couple of series and then it gets really good. But Mm. but it's easier to want to, for example, pick up the Sopranos again for me because I would feel in every episode I knew what had happened or what it had left me feeling and Mm. I feel like because there's this kind of blur and it's even though each episode may be an hour the actual structure within each episode blurs and spreads across the whole series and I thought the first series of Fargo was so tight in terms of that like every episode felt vital and contained and now with some of those series just oh yeah completely spread out I felt that way about the path in the end like the path was my real sort of melodramatic sinking in escapist telly and then Mm. by the third series it had got so earnest and kind of eating its own tail about its importance although Hugh Dancy every time he came on I immediately paid attention because he was the best thing about it hmm yeah I, I love you, Dancy. I thought he was absolutely incredible in Hannibal, which yeah. is just like one of the few examples of that show where of those shows where there isn't certainly in the second and particularly the third season, there's like very little sense of like episode to episode um continuity. It's more that sense of like you're watching this thing and it feels like one long sustained piece and you know, they get away from the notion of like killer of the week to make it more about this one relationship that defines the show but where I feel like the relationships themselves are so compelling that it doesn't matter to me that the plot from episode to episode either doesn't move at all or moves at a dizzying pace <laughs> like it's more <laughs> just kind of like I'm just happy to see um, Mads Mikkelsen and Hugh Dancy kind of like smolder and kind of engage in this incredibly charged 
kind of cat and mouse game between the two of them, uh, regardless of you know anything else that's going on around them. I think for me, in terms of the, the the biggest kind of thing in recent years of like a show that I was very into and then just completely tapped out on and felt no desire to go back to was absolutely Game of Thrones, and mm-hmm. that's that's unusual for me because I am something of a a dead ender or whatever you know i am someone who if i've put that much investment into a show i feel like i have to see how it ends regardless of how bad the journey up to that point is another example in recent years was i really really disliked the fifth season of justified the timothy olifant show i loved the first two seasons i thought three and four were really good but i found the fifth which was to be such a chore that I like left the last two episodes of it unwatched until the week before the sixth and final season aired, and then I just kind of like marathoned them and like right, I'm just gonna do it. And then the sixth season actually ended up being like a great return to form, and the show ended on a high. But like that was like that was the closest previously where I got to like I just have no interest in seeing how this story resolves itself because this show has just burnt up so much of my goodwill. But, like, Game of Thrones was literally, like, I got, like, two or three episodes into the penultimate season, Mm -hmm. and I was just kind of like, I can kind of see where this is going, and I don't care, so I'm just going to not watch any more of it. And that was, like, very freeing to not have to be uh, engaged in the discourse about whether or not the show's good anymore or if they're burning through too much plot or they're not taking enough time to just know that um the show would eventually end i would be able to read the wikipedia synopsis of what the story is probably read like rachel handler's very funny reviews of it where she clearly hated the show as much as i had come to and just kind of otherwise disengage from it unless there was like you know like Lindsay ellis's um series of videos on it where it was like okay this feels like she's coming from a very similar place to me of someone who really was into the show for a while and you know really dug what it was doing and then immediately turned on it but unlike me decided to kind of stay through to the bitter end but that was that was definitely one where just there was just it was like a switch going off where i went from this is a show that i really like to i just do not care what happens to any of these people and it's funny because it's not even like that you can boil that down to necessarily a specific moment like a jump the Mm. shark thing like i had that with glee right yeah it used to be like a real thing in my second year house at uni like we'd get together and watch it and that just sort of faded away Mm. another big one for me was doctor who and there's nothing about the show itself that made me stop watching it was because my mum and I used to watch it together and mm. I watched the first episode with Jodie Whittaker and then I think maybe the fourth of that season um, Chris Chibnall as showrunner uh, with the Rosa Parks episode that I thought was really good but after that it was too painful and that's not on mm. Doctor Who but I think it's also telling about Doctor Who that it is just so fast. Like, I really admire Who heads who begin from the very start, you know? Like, yeah. that's a huge undertaking to really get the breadth of a text like that. <laughs> and I only really started in, well, I think it was actually a Christopher Eccleston episode because Simon Pegg was in it. And I wanted to see mm. Simon Pegg because I was still 
deeply obsessed with Spaced as I sure. as I remain. Yeah. And then, you know, David Tennant was very much my era, my doctor. Really enjoyed Matt Smith. Dipped in and out with Peter Capaldi. That was kind of on Moffat, really, because yeah. I will never forgive him for what he did to River Song. And then, and then, sort of my very personal emotional circumstances, and that's. But it's interesting hearing people talk about the show, people who I used to talk about it with, kind of floating above the discourse and still kind of understanding certain things about it, but not being anywhere near up to date, and also not having a massive urge to dive into it again. Although, mm. absolute kudos to Jodie Whittaker for doing her uh, Doctor broadcasts on Twitter and on the internet yeah. for, for kids. What an absolute um, gem she is. But, you know, Huddersfield, so course for me i also um i also drifted away from doctor who and for me it was it was because i was writing recaps of it at the time Mm. and uh, i really enjoyed writing recaps of it uh, but it got to the the end of the matt smith era and i just realized i was writing the same thing over and over like my problems with the show (laughs) were like always the same the thing I liked about it was always the same and just I feel like the the level of engagement that I was doing with the show was not being rewarded by the quality <laughs> like I was just doing so much kind of work to kind of like write about the aspects of it that were working and then it just kind of felt like every episode had this kind of like kind of boring consistency to it mm. and H. Palmer Guy, I think, also talked about this when he did his his video on Sherlock. I think it was in that one where he talked about the problems he had with Doctor Who in general. And like one of the points that he made in that was that a lot of Stephen Moffat's work as a showrunner, both on Doctor Who and on Sherlock, is like the promise that in the next episode everything will make sense. Like constantly hinting at, you know oh there's a prophecy about silence falling and that will make sense eventually but then when it is eventually explained it turns out there's another mystery that has to be solved and like I think I just got really burnt out on the chase of the sense of like oh eventually this is all going to make sense and there's going to be meaning to this Yeah. when you realise oh no it isn't he's making it up as he goes along or if there is any sort of meaning to it it's kind of got lost in all of this other stuff and he just isn't telling satisfying stories on an episode to episode basis and that was kind of like the, that was the thing I think that really burnt me out on it and just even though I love Peter Capaldi as well like I think I watched the first half of the series that he did and there was just that sense of like it's kind of more of the same thing but a different accent <laughs> like that's kind of the only difference yeah and I think that is sort of indicative of a little bit of what we've already been talking about right like mm. if you're only being held for the for the point of some great purpose that's gonna happen I mean I guess I'm a TV atheist now I'm not waiting <laughs> for some kind of glorious afterlife like give me the experience now mm. that for me is why I will always defend Lost because even though Lost in its kind of like in the final analysis had that whole thing of like, you know, there's the church at the end and there's the afterlife, blah, 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 blah. All that sort of like, that didn't really matter to me as like a disappointing ending because 
so many of the individual episodes leading up to it were so much fun and it was a show that clearly enjoyed playing with all of these different science fiction conceits that the creators clearly loved as well like they were saying like what are we going to do now time travel let's do a time travel thing yes um (laughs) Uh, we'll do this whole season about time travel brilliant and we'll go to the 60s and it'll be cool and we'll get to kind of like just do a bunch of weird stuff and that enthusiasm was like what carried me along through it and like i think very early on i decided i don't really care what any of the explanations are i'm just really enjoying the ride they're taking us on and like that's why the ending being just kind of like a damp squib and then kind of struggling to tie all of the things together never bothered me because like i could point to like 20 or 30 episodes that are just like for me all time are great episodes of television that were just so much fun and so engaging and so emotional and that's that is kind of the thing that I always found disappointing about the um about the Moffat era of Doctor Who is like you couldn't really point to many individual episodes that had that feeling compared to like the um even just like the 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 Russell T Davis one or the even just the single series that Christopher Eccleston did as the star where there were loads of like individual episodes that you could just point to like the one where they go back in time to um Rose's parents wedding like I just remember that being like a really wonderfully constructed affecting little episode of television um or you know the first episode where they first meet is like oh man this is just like a real zingy great way to bring this show back and like there was there were very few of those once Moffat took over the show where you really felt as if the episodes in themselves could possibly stand up to anything other than being part of this kind of amorphous blob of a story that always seemed to be moving but also never getting anywhere so we end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? This week I have the Eliza Schlesinger sketch show, which was recommended to me mm. by my comedy partner, Rachel Ann Clark. Um, I'm not familiar with Eliza Schlesinger's work at all. I know she's a big deal, but she's one of those comedians that doesn't seem to have really like gravitated towards YouTube that much, which I think is interesting. Like, mm. I'm aware of her Netflix specials, but it's not like I'm ambiently aware of her already without me seeking her out. But my mm. word, this sketch show is great. I think it's got, like, the hit-to-miss ratio is very much in favour of hits. Um, there's a lot of kind of, like, Netflix-specific observation that I think is really well done. There's a lot of quite, like, emotional hit points in it that, and that I think is great. There's some bits that are properly surreal um and it kind of uh, scratched a little i think you should leave it mm-hmm. for me but very much her kind of um deal and it's six episodes of about 20 minutes so if you're suffering from a little bit of uh concentration span fog then i can't really recommend it enough cool i'm gonna recommend a series on youtube from sb nation called I think it's just called like the history of the Seattle Mariners. It's from John Boyce and Alex Rubenstein as part of their series Dorktown, where they just kind of examine moments in sports history through a data-driven lens. And they've done three episodes so far, and it's incredibly funny because the history of the Seattle Mariners is just like riven with just uh, tales of disaster 
their original baseball stadium just like burning down alongside most of the city them at one point being on the verge of closing down and having to essentially play better baseball than they ever had in their entirety of their career over the course of five games in order to continue existing which is like such wonderful sports movie pablum but was reality um and what i really like about what boyce and rubenstein do is they have their own like style of making the the various graphs and charts they're using really dynamic and telling a story in a way that feels very alive and weirdly emotional particularly in a story like that where it really is like this team will cease to exist if they don't beat the Yankees in a <laughs> five game series and um, I think it's just it's just so great that the, the three episodes that have been released so far are really funny at times very moving and emotional and I'm really excited to see what they do with the final six, uh, final three episodes of the series, they're going to come out over the coming weeks. But uh, yeah, I, I really recommend people check that out. If if nothing else, check out the the third episode, the battle for Seattle, which is really good. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, all the usual places. Rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. Now it's goodbye from me. Goodbye.